are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. If you me. haven't uh, been with us these last couple weeks, we just began a new sermon series in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we are now um, going to take a look at uh, the second half of, of chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, we have uh, physical Bibles right in front of you, in your pew backs in front of you. We encourage you to keep your Bibles open the entirety of the sermon. Because it's going to be this word, not my words. I'm speaking about these words, but it's these words, these words here, that transform us from the inside out. So would you hear these life-giving, transformative words written by God's servant, Paul? Ephesians 1, verse 15 says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who Believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You can tell a lot about a person based on the content of their prayers. And you can tell a lot about a person based on the lack of content in their prayers. See, what is prayer? What is prayer? When a, in a tiny little book, a little orange book, that the community group leaders and the ministry leaders of Renaissance Church read a few months ago, John Anwuchekwa, he writes this. He says, prayer is more than a casual conversation with our creator. It's far from twisting God's arm to get what we want. God is all-powerful. We can't twist his arm. We can't barter with him any more than my infant daughter can barter with me. She doesn't own anything I need or want. We can't demand anything from God because it's impossible for someone without needs to be coerced. So what is prayer, he says? He's telling us what it's not, but what is prayer? Prayer, he says, is calling on God to come through on his promises. I love that. 
Prayer is holding God's promises to his face in the presence of God and calling on him to fulfill his promises. We're calling on him not to bend his will to ours, but instead for us to bend our wills to his will and his plan. See, prayer, it accomplishes what we cannot accomplish on our own. And Paul knows this. Paul knows this. He, he starts in verse 15 with the spirit of gratefulness. He's grateful what the Lord, the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, is doing within the Ephesian church. He is grateful for their faith in Christ. And he's grateful for their love towards all the saints. Now, now typically, we find people praying for folks who lack faith. Praying for folks who lack love for others, don't we? We usually pray when there's a problem. But not Paul. Not Paul. Do you see what it says? He's praying because of their great faith, because they already have love for one another. Because Paul knows that what they're in more need of, Jesus, there is always more of Jesus. Paul knows that they don't need anything other than the gospel. They just need more of the gospel. You can tell a lot about a person by what they pray for. And what's Paul praying for? More of Jesus in their life. More knowledge of God in their life. I wonder, what do we pray for? Because what we pray for reveals what we think we need. What we pray for reveals what we want the most. So Paul prays for the church to know three things. To know the hope of God. To know the riches of God. And third, to know the great power of God. He knows that they and we are always in more need of Christ. And he also knows there's always more Christ. All ready to dive in? First point. To know the hope of God. What was Paul doing in verses 1 through 14? He was praising the triune God. And now he is praying to the triune God in verses 15 to 23. Praise of God leads to praying to God. And Paul knows that no one graduates from the gospel. No matter how strong their faith is, no matter how deep their love is, it could be stronger still and deeper still. He prays, remembering you in verse 16. He's remembering the church in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul is praying for God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the spirit of wisdom, the triune God, to do something that he cannot do while he's sitting in prison. To increase the Ephesians' knowledge. Paul knows he is not the fourth person of the Trinity. He needs the full power and presence of a triune God who once opened the eyes of their hearts. No, that's not a cheesy 90s praise and worship song. It's biblical. Open the eyes of their hearts to see the glory of Christ and to get more of Christ. Do you see what he says? He says past tense. Past tense. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. When was that? If you zoom up to verse 12, he says, when you heard the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's when Christ's light shined on their darkened hearts. But now he's saying, it's only by the same spirit of God, verse 17, that you'll come to know God more. The only way you can know God more is God making himself known to you. You see, the enlightenment that came 18 centuries after this letter was penned, it claims that knowledge is something that you have to go searching for in the darkness. That light is something you have to find. But what the scholars of the enlightenment failed to realize is that what motivates you to find something has already been darkened. Your hearts. Darkness cannot find light. Light has to shine into our darkened hearts. Paul talks about this later in 2 Corinthians. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying? You cannot come to know the light without the light making himself known. Is this what we pray for? Not just for yourself, but for the church. Do we pray and know that spiritual wisdom isn't just for the elite and the leaders? Spiritual wisdom is for everybody in the church. It's not just for the mature, but the immature in Christ. Because you cannot exhaust the wisdom of God. You cannot exhaust it. And Paul doesn't say to have your mind's eye enlightened, does he? It's the eyes of what? Help me out. The heart. This is a doctrine that illuminates delight deep within our souls. It's not mere academic knowledge. It's adoration of Christ. It affects our whole souls. I mean, can, can I confess something to you guys that I confessed to the elders about a month ago? I feel like I love knowing about Christ more than I love knowing Christ. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference 
When a father says, I know about my child. Versus a father who says, I know my child. I don't want just to have good and true theology. I want to experience the Christ, the theos, of what this theology points to. Is the truth about God true? Yes, but it's more. I just don't want to know it's true. It is true. I just don't want to know that Christ is good. Yes, he is good, but I want my soul, my heart, the eyes of my heart to know that it's beautiful. That my doctrine of Christ would lead to delight in Christ. Do you want this? This is what Paul is praying for. John Stott puts it this way. He says, thus knowing knowledge and faith need each other. Faith cannot grow without a firm basis of knowledge. And knowledge, hear this, Rob, hear this, those who are like me. Knowledge is sterile if it does not bring forth faith. Need both. Doctrine and devotion. Doctrine and delight. Academic knowledge, yes, that leads to adoration of knowing the one who knows us completely and fully, right? And this is not just a past reality. He's talking about a future hope that is calling us. Is it true that we have to call on Christ to save us? Is that true? Yes. But our calling is a response to him calling us first. He's called us into this future hope. We are future-oriented beings, that you were created for eternity. And Paul is praying that you would know that you have a hope that can face anything. This is not secular optimism. This is not wishful thinking of a child getting something on their birthday. This is certainty. Certainty of a hope that cannot be destroyed by adversity. When I was younger, me and my friends uh, in the countryside did a bunch of stupid things. I mean, really foolish things. Like, as a newly minted driver with a fresh driver's license, you know what we'd get bored doing on, in the countryside? Driving around in the dark with no headlights on at 60 plus miles an hour. We couldn't see 100 yards in front of us, let alone 10 feet in front of us. It was terrifying. Many of you, you live your life without the light of the hope that Christ is calling you to. Can't see 10 feet Ten years ahead of us. Because we forget about this light of Christ that is shown into our darkened hearts. It's terrifying when you don't know your future, isn't it? It's terrifying when you're just wondering, what's going to happen next? Paul says there's certainty here that can face any type of adversity. 
And what is that hope? It's Jesus. The presence of Jesus, where you don't only beg for a change in circumstance. You don't only beg for a different situational outcome. But instead, you are begging for a change of character by the knowledge of God in any circumstance. How do we know this? Because this is what Paul asked them to pray for. Look what he writes later in the letter, at the end of the letter. He says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known, there's that word, make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. What does Paul want them to pray for as he's under house arrest, chained to a guard both morning, night, and evening? He doesn't ask them to pray for a circumstance to change his chains. He asks them to pray that he would fearlessly know the gospel and make the gospel known. Oh, the certainty of the hope of Paul's calling. Is this what we hope for in the midst of difficult relationships? In the midst of difficult careers and jobs? In the midst of difficult living situations? Do we just merely pray for a change in circumstance and not for a change of our character focusing on the hope of our calling? I can tell a lot about a person by the content of their prayers. Paul prays that you, me, would know this hope. But he also prays to know the riches of God. You all still with me? Verse 18. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. If you heard the sermon last week, we said that an inheritance is riches that we do not deserve and we do not work for. Right? What is an inheritance? It's when somebody dies, whether it's a family member or a friend, and they live, leave riches to you, land, estate, money. Now, who did the work to increase that inheritance? Who decided in their will that somebody else would get their inheritance. It's the one who died. The one who died did the work, and the one who lives simply gets to receive it with gratefulness. Isn't this the gospel? That God the Father willed that God the Son would do the work of our salvation. Die so that those who live, us, can receive the riches of his divine presence and his divine possessions that's ours for all eternity. And what do we have to do? Believe. Receive it. And Paul says in verse 18, this is ours. This is not just for one saint, but for all the saints. God's 
party in heaven will not just be this little private party for each individual or for each individual churches. No, it will be this glorious, great multitude that no man can number from every nation, from all tribes, from all tongues, in all times. Can you think about that for a second? All the saints that have come before you will be there. All the saints that will come after you will be there. And they'll be standing before the throne. How often do we pray that we would know this truth? How often? I mean, wouldn't you love to have a friend like Paul? Who not only prays these things for you, but lets you know that he's praying these things for you. I mean, can we be honest with ourselves? How often do we find ourselves praying that others would see how wrong they are? Which is really just a false humility of a prayer for them to see how right we are. How often do we pray that rather than praying that we would know the riches that are ours in Christ? This word know is different than the word you saw earlier, knowledge. Right? Knowledge, epigenosco, is just this to know a thought, to know a truth. But this edinai know, it's to see with your hearts. That's why that song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, doesn't say so that I can know you, so that I can do what? See you. What do you need to see in the dark? Light. And isn't the light always shining brighter when we're able to admit how dark it actually is? I read not too long ago. Read not too long ago about this guy named Howard Thurman. He's an African-American scholar. Uh, he's not a believer, but he wanted to do some research about Negro spirituals from back in the slave era. He noticed that all these slaves would reference riches, heaven, crowns, robes of glory when their King Jesus returns. And while most folks believed that this theology would turn slaves into weak and docile servants. This non-believer, Thurman, found the opposite. Why? It's because their conviction grew that the new heavens and the new earth, this inheritance, what he calls this kind of universe, that it cannot deny the demand of love for all people and longing for all people to be treated equal. They knew, nay, I say they saw, they saw uniting with loved ones in Christ as their future certainty, which gave them hope today, that God would make all injustices come undone. All wrongs will be righted. They would go from slaves in chains to now sons with riches. And he went on to say, that this did not weaken them, it strengthened them. It taught, he said, a people how to ride high in life. 
Look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope. And to use facts, he's talking about the future new heavens, new earth, as raw material out of which they fashion a hope that their environment. Just think of the slave trade. They can fashion a hope that their environment with all its cruelty could not crush this enabled them to reject annihilationism and to affirm a terrible right to live. They didn't just know their future inheritance in Christ. They knew it. They saw it with their hearts. I mean, if you want a concrete example of a people who trusted completely in the sovereignty of God and the certainty of their inheritance in the saints, look no further than the black church. They saw an eternal justice that would not lead to despair. Nor would they turn them into oppressors over those that once oppressed them. No, instead they gave them joy in what's ahead and even treated their enemies the same way that Christ treated them. Forgiveness and love. They saw the certainty of their everlasting hope lead them to not fear death but to know with certainty and to give them a spirit of wisdom of how to live today. See, do you know that your future inheritance is not just for the future? It's for right now. It's to give you wisdom on how to live today, how to live with one another, pray for one another. To know hope, to know the riches, and finally, Paul prays, to know this great power of God, our third point, that you may know, he continues in verse 19, what is the immeasurable, you cannot measure it, can't put a tape measure on it, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is this great power God wants us to know? It's the power that defeats the power that we cannot defeat on our own. What is the power you and I cannot defeat? Sin and the consequence of sin. Death. Why can't we defeat it? One, we're fallen. We cannot overcome evil on our own. But we can pray to the one who can. We're mortal. We cannot defeat death. God's great power in Christ Jesus, Paul says, has conquered both. Is this what we know to pray for? Is this what comes to our minds when adversity hits us? The great theologian A.W. Tozer, with all of his imperfections, writes this great line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing 
about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Has anyone ever just given you like 10 seconds to think about that? I'm going to give you a gift right now. No phones out. Eyes closed. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Tozer is saying, what Paul is saying is that when we know God, when we see our future hope, when we see the riches of our inheritance, it will determine how we live today. And Paul wants you to see that you are no longer dead in your sins. The power that's within you is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Verse 19 where we are able to say there's no fear in life, no power in death, because this is the life of Christ in me. I love how Jen Wilkin puts it. She says the resurrection isn't just an event that we look to in history. It's an event that affects how we live right here, right now. That the power of the resurrection does three things in our life. It does three things. The resurrection destroys The penalty of death because Jesus has risen from the dead. The power of the resurrection destroys the power of sin in our life today. Because we have the spirit within us crying, Abba, Father, that we will now want things of the spirit and not of the flesh anymore. It only destroys sin's penalty. It destroys sin's power. And it will one day destroy sin's presence because in the new heavens and new earth sin will be eradicated he wants you to know the power in christ's resurrection but also in his ascension verses 20 to 21 he's saying that there is not one square inch of the world not one square inch of the universe where christ does not declare all things his he's seated above all All powers, all dominions, all authorities, they are all underneath his feet. You know what this meant for the church in Ephesus? That the sitting Caesar and the future Caesars do not control their future in Christ. You know what this means for us here in Renaissance Church in Pittsburgh? It doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office today or tomorrow or the governor's office today or tomorrow. It doesn't matter who sits in the boss's chair today or tomorrow. They do not control our destiny because Jesus is enthroned. Your parents don't control your future. Your kids don't control your future. No one, no powers in this world control your future because your certainty is in the power of Christ. Resurrection, because he's enthroned. But even more, in verses 22 and 23, we have power in Jesus' presence. His very presence. That Christ is the head of the church. And here's the good news. I'm not. 
You're not. Christ is the head. We are the body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Why does Paul want us not just to know this, but to know this? It's so the world would look at the church in Ephesus and look at the church in Pittsburgh as not a group of people who just intellectually, academically know something, but they live in the wisdom of that knowledge of the Spirit of God. And what does wisdom look like today? Unity, not uniformity. Oneness and not sameness. It means that we are not counting on others to fulfill our temporary hopes. That's just fleeting and fading, isn't it? I mean, don't we often pray that for others to fulfill our hopes? I mean, when you think about the future, when I think about the future, how far are you actually thinking? Maybe some of you are 10 hours down the road of life. 10 days, 10 months, 10 years. I mean, aren't we so driven by the fear of tomorrow rather than the certainty of eternity? See, what happens when we fear tomorrow and don't have hope in the future? When others get in the way of our man-made future hopes and riches, what do we do? Oh, God, I pray that you would change them so that they get out of my way and not stop my future hopes and riches from happening. We pray for them to change, don't we? Isn't it so tempting to expect others to fulfill your standard? And to fulfill your future instead of praying for them to be fulfilled by and with Christ? Because what happens when they don't fulfill our needs as our functional Savior and functional hopes? What happens when they don't measure up? We forget about them and we find this other group of people that will fit in with until they stop fulfilling our hopes and dreams. I mean, what if we were the church who stopped praying, fix them, but instead we'd pray for the Spirit to fill us? Because Christ is the head. We are the body. He fills all. In. We have that power within us. Paul says later, in a different letter that he writes to the church in Rome where he's in prison, he writes this, and if the spirit of him, you want to know what this power is that he's talking about? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring life to your mortal bodies, to life through his spirit who lives in you. Do you know how the, you have the same access to you right now that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? That's available not a me reality, this is a we reality. The fullness, the great power of the whole church. I just wonder what would happen 
if the world would put eyes on us and they would walk and live amongst this body, the church, the people, what would they say we are filled with? Is it Christ who fills all in all? Or are we filled with preferences, divisions, self-righteousness, pride? Or would they say they are filled with Christ's spirit? That Paul in Ephesians 4.1 says, you are living into the hope with which he called you. We're praying that we'd be filled with all humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the bond of peace by the Spirit because we are praying to the one Father. We are praying to the one Son, the one Lord. We have one baptism, one faith, one Spirit. They're seeing Christ in us because we are praying that we all would know Christ and make him known. You can tell a lot about a church by the contents of their prayers. You can tell a lot about a person by what they pray for. You know, we find Jesus praying in John 17, a prayer that we read earlier. Jesus was sweating blood as he thought about his immediate future that would happen 10 plus hours from the time he prayed. You know what he prayed? Not my will, but your will be done. Do you know who he prayed for? Not just his current disciples, but his future disciples who hadn't even been formed in their mother's womb yet. Do you know that Jesus was praying for you? He was praying for me. Before I even knew how to say his name, before I even knew, before I was even formed, he was praying. You know, he prayed that you would know him, that you would know him, and the result of us knowing him would lead to such unity that the world would only say something supernatural has to be happening within them because they are one just as the Son and the Father is one. And you know what happened to Jesus after he was done praying? The powers and the authorities of this earth took him away to be brutally beaten, bloodied, whipped, and flogged. and nailed to a Roman torture device called a cross. For at that cross, Jesus stripped from us the only thing that could strip us from hope, the penalty of our sin, death itself. It's in the death of Christ that our future death is defeated. And he defeated our, not just an enemy, but the executioner, for the wages of sin is death. 
just as a credit card statement is powerless against someone where it's been paid off, death sentence is powerless against us. Because the statement for the wages of our sin has been read paid in full. And Jesus' death not only destroyed the power of death, but his resurrection means that death is no longer your future. But life is. Hope is. We don't have death to look forward to. We have delight to look forward to. Tim Keller, he writes this, all death can now do to Christians is to make their life infinitely better. Do you know this hope? Do you know this riches? Do you know this great power? If you don't, You're sitting here thinking, I forget to pray for this stuff all the time. Jesus wants to be gentle with you right now and say, I've had you this whole time. Well, have you forgotten to plead to your Father in heaven? I've been pleading to your Father in heaven. I'm at the right hand interceding for you. You know what you're welcomed with? grace to approach his throne and begin praying anew. What is praying? It's calling in the promises of God. You know what God has always promised to do? To give wisdom and knowledge to those who ask for it. So let us be a church who doesn't just pray for other people to change. But we would pray that we know we need more of Jesus. And there's always more of Jesus to go around. Let us be a church who does not simply just only pray for a change in circumstance, but for the spirit of wisdom to give us true knowledge in the midst of every circumstance. For we have a certainty that can face any adversity.